Amen. Well, please, if you would, would you uh, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 8 to 11. And these verses are perhaps the most surprising verses in all the book. And if you can grasp what Paul is uh, communicating uh, here, you'll understand how it is to guard uh, your freedom in Christ. Let's pray. Father, be pleased to open our hearts and minds and give us, Lord, uh, the help uh, we need. Uh, Send your spirit uh, to strengthen us, uh, to enable us to concentrate and to set aside all distractions. And Father, uh, to be able uh, to hear what you'd say to us now. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Well, turning back is not the way forward. It seems obvious, right? (laughs) Some time ago, I decided to get back into backpacking, and uh, my hiking buddy and guide chose the Linville Gorge in North Carolina as where we would spend the weekend. Now, the Linville Gorge, if you're not familiar with it, uh, is a very narrow slice of wilderness that has a river running down it, And it's uh, just about a half a mile from the rim to the river. And it's a gorge, and so it's very steep. It's hard to climb without a 50-pound backpack on. And uh, we arrived on a Friday night. It was was late, and we hiked four miles around the rim past uh, those who were scaling uh, the rock outcroppings uh, that were above uh, the gorge. And then we set up... Uh, camp and slept very well. The next morning we uh, descended in uh, to the gorge and we arrived at the river. We donned sandals, tied our boots to our backpacks and uh, in the murky water we felt our way along. Uh, You can't see your feet and so you just feel along the way and you don't want to lay down in the river. It, at its high point, uh, reached our uh, waist, and, uh, and it was really an experience unlike any I've ever had. When we reached the other side, the wilderness there was just a tangle of downed trees. And in a wilderness area, for those of you who have never hiked in the wilderness, there are no blazes. You can't find the, the trails. There usually are trails Uh, in an area that's been hiked a lot, although sometimes you can mistake animal trails uh, for where you actually want to go. But all these downed trees, the further we went, 
the bigger they were. And of course, they didn't lay flat. They were being held up by branches. And so they started to be about uh, chest high, too high to climb over with a backpack on. And so I meant taking your backpack off, sliding your backpack underneath the tree, and then putting it back on and uh, walking four more feet to the next tree. Well, after a while, it just got to be too hard to go uh, forward. And we turned back as a result in the hopes of picking up the trail. And I'm sure you've had times like that in your own life, uh, maybe in a relationship, maybe at work, uh, maybe in some circumstance, and you've just come up against something that's too hard to keep going. Well, Paul fears that that's what's happening uh, to the Christians in uh, Galatia. He writes that they are turning back to paganism and choosing to be enslaved. They are undoing their conversion. Look at verses 8 and 9. Notice the time reference. Formerly, you did not know God. When you were pagans, you worshipped idols and you were enslaved by them. But now you've come to know God. How can you turn back and be slaves once more? Well, what's happened? They're turning back to the elementary principles of the world, which are weak and worthless, that have no spiritual power, and have no spiritual riches. And Paul's afraid that his labors among them have been in vain. Now, Paul is not thinking they're not actually Christians. But he is thinking, and it's been his concern from the very beginning of this letter, that they are letting go of the true gospel and they are losing the freedom that they should have in Christ. So what does Paul mean by elementary principles of the word? excuse me, of the world. Well, the word uh, stoichia, elementary principles is how it's translated, was used by Greek philosophers uh, to speak of, well, the elements that made up the universe, earth, fire, uh, water, and wind. And some of the early church fathers used this word uh, to describe the spiritual beings uh, that were behind these powers, behind the ancient uh, pagan gods represented by idols. And actually there are uh, a significant number of modern scholars who want to understand Paul meaning that here as well. But there's a third uh, use of this word, and it describes, uh, well, the ABCs of learning. The ba for instance, the basic principles of mathematics. And in this context, it's best to see that Paul is putting his own stamp on this word. He's speaking of the basic principles of religion. The basic principles can be put this way. It is self-salvation by serving idols. Now let me explain what I mean by this. In primitive religions, you save yourself by getting the life you want. 
That's really what salvation really is. It's getting of a life you desire or a desirable uh, life. And even Jesus uses the word salvation in this very holistic uh, word. It's what the word shalom means in the Old Testament. It, it means uh, receiving uh, life in all its uh, fullness. And in primitive religions, the way you got this uh, was by sacrificing and calling on the gods. You offered sacrifices uh, to the gods in whatever endeavor you were engaged in. So if you were in a war, you would offer sacrifices to Ares or Mars in order that you'd gain victory in battle. Or if you were planting uh, crops, you would sacrifice to an agricultural or fertility uh, god like Baal. Or if you're sick, to a god of healing. Or if you're about to sail out into the uh, seas, you know, you'd call on Poseidon or perhaps uh, Moat in the Old Testament world. You'd need to sacrifice to these gods to get what you needed, whether it was uh, health, a good harvest, safe passage, whatever it is you needed uh, for life. And in the ancient world, there was pretty much a god for every uh, part of your lives. And what you're really doing is you're pulling the strings. You're manipulating the god to give you what uh, you need. This is how all other religions actually function. The revealed religion of the Bible functions like this. A gracious and good God reveals his will and you submit to it, trusting he'll give you the life you need. All other religions say that to get the life you need, you need to manipulate the gods. You need to persuade them to give you uh, what you uh, want. Now, even secular and irreligious people try to save themselves. They're seeking to get the life they want. And they do it uh, by uh, elevating something to the place that God uh, should have in their lives. You might think of it as deifying something or someone. Now, it might be money. It might be uh, work. It might be beauty. It might be sex. It might be family. It might be the respect of another uh, person, the acceptance, perhaps an approval of, of a parent. There are many adults who want the approval of their parents. They've never uh, received that. They don't feel uh, loved. And whatever you elevate this way controls you. And it controls how you think, it shapes your desires and ultimately how you live. Now take work, for example. And my children have all pointed out to me, work is too important uh, for me in my life. And they've pointed out to me that I tend to draw my sense of meaning and value as a human being uh, from it. And for many people, whether it's that they seek or whether it's uh, money or whatever else they might think that work will produce for them, the lifestyle they want, maybe even recognition, uh, work begins to take on an increasingly important place in their lives. And when you do that, work actually controls how you think. You think, I just need to work a little bit harder at this. If I just put in a few more hours right now. And so you tell people right now, this is a very special project. And when I get through this project, why, uh, my life will get balanced again. 
Of course, as soon as that project's done, there's another one that comes along, and soon enough, your life, well, it doesn't change. You're just, you see, it's determined, putting work up in that place is determined how you'll spend your uh, time. The time you would spend ordinarily with other people is being given uh, to work. And so you're making sacrifices to work, which is an idol. In the end, work might bring you wealth, but it won't bring you inner contentment or spiritual riches. You'll never accomplish enough, have enough, or get enough recognition to bring lasting joy. And you'll end up sacrificing your relationships, your rest, and perhaps even your health. And it's not just ordinary people. Some of the most talented people, the most famous people, in a moment of candor when they're interviewed, will tell you that that's been their experience too, when you would think they have everything. But in fact, they don't have what is most valuable. Paul further explains how this works in the book of Romans. We've already uh, seen Romans uh, 125, where he writes, they worshiped created things rather than the creator. And then in uh, verse 21, just before that, he says this, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, when you serve an idol, you uh, begin to think in a distorted manner. You become deluded. Um, you get false pictures of reality and really uh, what will satisfy you uh, in life. This is, of course, what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden uh, as they uh, believed that God was not good. As they longed to exercise their freedom, they began to think their freedom, their asserting their independence from God would bring them the life uh, that they want. They imagined that all that God had warned them about in taking from the tree the knowledge of good and evil was not true. And of course, they were profoundly deceived by that, and all of us ever since have been living with the consequences of the foolishness of their hearts. And idols produce emotional bondage. We worship and serve the created thing, Paul says. You see, whatever you worship, you serve. Because worship is nothing more or less than greatly desiring something. It's just desiring something. That's, that's what it is. And if that seems very strange to you, it's probably because you may be inclined to think that we're just what we think, but we are not. We are hardwired to be creatures that desire. We have longings. And the only one that could ever satisfy those longings is Jesus Christ as he brings us into a true and living uh, relationship with the one who's infinitely beautiful and infinitely uh, desirable. But these supersized desires are what the New Testament's referring to when it talks about sinful uh, desires. So let me recap this. The ABCs of religion, the elementary principles of the word, which both religious and non-religious uh, people uh, seek their own salvation, happens by elevating created things or persons to an ultimate thing. It's self-salvation through serving idols. 
Now, surprisingly, Paul says that the Galatians who embrace Jesus Christ are turning back to this, to paganism, to this way of living. In verse 9, Paul uses the word turn, which is frequently used by him to speak of turning from idols to God. And he just stands this word on its head and says the Galatians are turning away from Jesus and the gospel back to paganism back to idols. And this would have shocked them. I'm sure that's Paul's intent. He is intending uh, to awaken them out of the slumber. Uh, And the false teachers among them, after all, were telling them to embrace uh, the Mosaic law. And they would have been deeply offended by what Paul's saying here. After all, they were becoming more religious. They were adding rules and rituals. They were adding circumcision to faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says they were embracing the rituals around the calendar in the Old Testament. So how can Paul call that paganism? Well, it's because they've moved away from simply trusting Jesus and his obedience to God as their basis for being accepted by God. Or to put it in a more theological way, they've let go of justification. They've let go of the gift of alien righteousness. They've let go of their adoption. And they are holding on to actually their obedience and their uh, performance. And this is exactly what Paul's getting at in Philippians uh, chapter 3. He writes uh, there in verse 3 through 8, For we are the circumcision who worship by the the Spirit, excuse me, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. For though I, speaking of himself, Paul, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see what Paul is throwing away, he is rejecting all the expressions of first century Judaism. All the things that people would have said, this marks you as a pious Jew. He's saying it's worthless. It's utterly worthless. And what he's saying here, if you put these two passages together, what he's saying is, is that biblical Judaism, as it was practiced in the first century, had turned the revealed religion of the Bible into an idol into an idol. It's one of the reasons Jesus attacks the traditions of the elders so profoundly uh, in Judaism because they had turned uh, religion, the revealed religion of the Bible, into an idol and they'd lost God himself as a result. See, biblical religion can be turned into an idol because it supplants the way of faith as the way to relate to God by substituting 
the way of obedience. The way of faith means God's acceptance of us is a gift. And the way of obedience means that God's acceptance has to be earned or worked for. Ronald Fung is a 21st century New Testament scholar, and, and he captures this this way. Earning your salvation, your acceptance with God and his gifts, that's getting the life. You want those gifts. Through scrupulous biblical morality and religion is just as much enslavement to idols as the outright paganism and all uh, its immoral practices. In fact, this is what John and Charles Wesley discovered. The Wesleys uh, are... If you're not familiar with their names, they founded uh, method, the Methodist uh, churches, and they were in utter bondage uh, to their religion. John Wesley, when he graduated from Oxford, he and some of his friends uh, formed what they called the Holy Club. I know that sounds really pretentious to us uh, today, uh, but it was a reflection of the fact that um, uh, Wesley and others, he in, in particular was uh, the son of a clergyman, and he was a clergyman at this point. He was orthodox in his belief, uh, re- religious in his practice, upright in his conduct, and full of good works. And this club was for a group of people that wanted to support themselves in uh, living uh, this out. He and his friends visited inmates in prison, the workhouses in Oxford. They took pity on the children in the slums of the city, providing them with food and clothing and education. They observed Saturday as a Sabbath and Sunday as a Sabbath. They went to church, took Holy Communion, they gave alms, searched the scriptures, fasted, and prayed. But they were bound in the fetters of their own religion, for they were trusting in themselves and their righteousness instead of putting their faith in Jesus Christ and Him uh, crucified. Later, after Wesley met Christ, uh, he said, I had even then the faith of a servant and not that of a son. And Christianity is a religion for sons. Now, it's important for, uh, for you and me to understand this. In fact, it can't be really overstated. Uh, Paul is teaching that it is possible for biblical religion uh, to be turned into idolatry and for us to be enslaved. And this is why the Holy Spirit uh, writes what he does in, uh, in chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm there and don't uh, submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, in verse 10, Paul uses the word observe, and it means to observe scrupulously. Uh, and this process of actually taking the revealed religion of the Old and New Testaments and turning it into an idol happens very subtly, and it happens out of the very best of intentions. So um, you become a follower of Jesus Christ, and you start, as you read the gospel, see that he got up early in the morning uh, to meet with God and to pray, and that he knew the scriptures well. And so you start getting up early uh, to uh, listen to God in the scriptures and to pray and 
you see that Jesus attended synagogue, and so you start making attendance at church a priority. And you see that Jesus is uh, generous, and you be, see that you should put God first in your finances, and so you, you do so, and you start helping the poor. And on and on it goes, and pretty soon you have a lifestyle. Eventually you see that all the Ten Commandments are in fact reaffirmed in the New Testament. And Jesus says that this is what it means to love God and others. Now, of course, you should do all these things. Don't get me wrong. These are all good uh, things. But what subtly happens to so many people is that as they do this, they are opening their hands on the grip they had on justification by uh, faith. Um, Because what happens is you get all these messages when you go to church from people. You either get words and nods of approval uh, when you're doing these things, or you get messages that you need to be doing that. Uh, you get constant feedback. If you come and hear a sermon like this, you're getting feedback about uh, how you're living. And in your heart, because this is the essence, really the essence, the bent of our hearts is you begin to think, I should rely on how I'm living as the basis for my standing with God. When I'm doing these things, I feel like I have a good standing with God. I can hold my head up high here at church. Everybody will respect me as a result for uh, doing these things. And what's happened is you've subtly shifted from relating to God on the basis of faith to obedience. And you're shifting your outlook from living as a son who lives in response to God's grace to relating to God like a slave. And inwardly, you begin to bear the fruits of the inner life that we see in Jesus' parable of the two sons that are exhibited in the elder brother. That he's unrecognized and unrewarded for his service angry about that, critical of others. It's not our brother, my brother, it's your son. Father, he's not my, I've disowned him. He's not like me at all. You become critical of others. You can't rejoice when people who are far uh, from God, who are immoral, are being drawn uh, toward uh, God. Uh, it, It brings you no pleasure. And whether you perceive it or not, you've lost intimacy. You really lack intimacy with God. You see, the point is this. Anything, anything besides Jesus Christ that has taken title to your heart, to your functional trust, that preoccupies you, that has your loyalty, that you fear and delight in, is an idol. And that can happen even with your knowledge of Scripture, even in your seeking to work out what it means to follow Christ. Christ is no longer your delight. It's the level of obedience that you can give. Are you enslaved? These three questions may help you find out. What makes life worth living for you? What's your greatest Fear. 
what if it happened would make your life worthless? You simply wouldn't want to go on. Answer those questions and you'll find what it is that really has title to the affections of your heart. Now, only Jesus can free us, free you and me from the idols of our hearts. And I want you to understand, idolatry is not something you deal with once in your life, and it's like over. And Calvin said it well when he said, our hearts are idol factories. As soon as you recognize one idol and uh, you dismantle it, it's not very long before another one comes up to capture our hearts. Our love and loyalty is just not constant. Our hearts are not consistent. We're just not yet capable of that. And so we constantly actually have to examine our hearts and see what's captured our hearts. What, what is it we really live for? What really awakens our deepest desires and affections? Remember, idols are not usually bad things. They're usually good things that have become ultimate things in our lives. And Paul writes here in verse 9, and it'd be easy to miss this, how Paul is pointing the Galatians to the gospel and their relationship with the Father. Paul says what really counts is not that you know God, but that God knows you. This knowing by God is personal. It's deeply personal. It's a warm knowing. It includes a sense of God's nearness, his affection, his love, since you and I are his children. It's not an abstract knowing. It's not like God knows you the way uh, you might know what's in your refrigerator. No, it's not at all like that. It's very personal. It's warm full of warmth and love. And God's knowing them includes his setting his fatherly affections on them. He loved us first and graciously chose to make himself known to us. How does that uh, help us turn back from idols? Well, it's God's knowing you that makes you a Christian and not so much your knowing him. Why does that break this cycle that Paul's writing about? Well, Richard Lovelace, uh, who was one of my teachers, wrote a book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. I heard about it uh, very early on in my theological training, and later on I got to study uh, with him for three years. And he writes this in that book. He says, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure persons. Much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they're receiving from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they're supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride. A fierce defensive assertion of their righteousness, of their be obedience, and a defensive criticism of others because uh, they are seeking to establish that they are in fact right because of how they live and therefore entitled to God's love. 
These are the signs of insecurity. Are these true of you? It was probably 10 years into being a Christian that I began to see that I had this terrible, critical spirit of other people. I looked at other Christians and thought, they're not trying as hard as I am to follow Jesus. I looked at other pastors and I looked down on them. I was highly critical of other churches. And it was a turning point because I began to recognize that actually the gospel had not gotten as deep a hold of my heart as I thought. Even though I had it all spelled out in my head and preached it every Sunday, it actually wasn't being lived out of my heart because in this subtle way, my heart was actually trusting in what I was doing and I wasn't relating to God on the basis of faith. God's heart was and is so unshakably set on us that the Father sent his only begotten Son into the world and caused him to be born into poverty and obscurity. He lived a perfect life, loving God and others, and was never selfish. He never had a minute where he was just out for himself. Uh, he emerged from obscurity, and for three years he gathered disciples uh, around him, and he announced to them that the kingdom of God had arrived in his person. And he demonstrated the powers of the new age uh, through the miracles that he did. And he was resolved with unshakable love to give his life as a substitute in our place on the cross. He received the penalty that we deserve for our sins so that we could be clothed in his righteousness and made acceptable to God. His love for us in his heart carried him all the way through the shame and the abuse of the cross. And so you and I must repent and turn entirely from ourselves uh, to him, uh, entrusting ourselves to his love. And if this morning you've never done that, today is a good day to turn from yourself to him. And this morning, if the Spirit has awoken you to the fact that something else has taken title to your heart, that it's really captured uh, the imagination, the longing of your heart, and it's more important to you than Christ, then it's time for you, too, to join me in repenting and turning in faith back to Jesus Christ. Let me lead us in prayer. Most gracious Lord Jesus, because of the Father's love, you were sent as a gift to us. Thank you, thank you that all that you have done to take us to yourself. Oh Lord, uncover those places where we're actually trusting in ourselves and serving idols. Lord, Break through the deceptions that happen within us that are so deep and that we uh, cannot detect on our own. 
and bring us to that happy place of turning from ourselves to Christ once again. Enable us uh, to taste fully and afresh his love. And we pray for any who are here who have never done that, that you would uh, hear their heart prayer, that they uh, might themselves call upon you and be saved. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have done that this